This is Shop Talk Radio, episode 85, with Daniel Arsham. Welcome to Shop Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nick Onkin, and on this show, we bring you inspiring guests to dive underneath the hood of the creative entrepreneur lifestyle to take your creativity, business, and life to the next level. Life is about creating opportunities rather than waiting around for others. A quote by this week's episode guest of Shop Talk Radio, famous artist Daniel Arsham. I've recently found Daniel's art over the last year through my friend Usher, who is really into his art, and he does some amazing pieces. He does these volcanic ash sculpted objects that are kind of crumbling apart And they're everyday objects from cameras to cassette players to many other things. He is also working with Usher on his new Chains album and the the videos and art that goes along with it. Daniel also created the architecture firm called Snarkitecture, which fascinatingly enough, they did the Kith store in New York City, one of my favorite sneaker shops. Daniel has shown his work all around the world, including museums like the MoMA PS1 in New York, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Miami, and many others. I love that Daniel has been using his art in social justice movements and things like that. In this episode, we learn many things. We learn about how he started his own exhibition space to catalyze his career We learn how he started making money with his art in the very beginning. We also learn what his experimentation process is like and how his colorblindness affects his work. We also learn how he creates collections and we also learn how he's using lucid dreaming to integrate into his creative process right now. We also learn about his exploration into film and other things like creating a balance with his personal life and his art and business life. We also talk about the power of social media for artists in today's culture. So check it out, shoptalkradio.com slash EP85. We'll have some photos of Daniel in his studio and links to his website so you can see his work online and get a sense of what he's up to. So without further ado, I bring you the one, the only... Daniel Arsham. What's up, everyone? Welcome to Shop Talk Radio. We've got the legendary and amazing artist Daniel Arsham in his studio today. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Hey, thanks. Thanks for coming on. So let's just get started. I want to kind of get a history of, of how you came about, how you came to where you are now, how did you get into art, and where are you from? Sure, yeah. Uh, so I grew up in Miami, Florida, and uh, I, my original studies were actually in photography. Mm. Um, I studied at a design and architecture high school in Miami and ended up um, coming to New York for college at Cooper mm. Union. Uh, architecture was always something that I was sort of really interested in, and Cooper had a program, um, didn't exactly mix art and architecture, but they were so close, you mm. know, um, and I was quite friendly with many of the architects there. So after I finished school in uh, New York, I moved back to Miami, and some friends of mine had rented a kind of dilapidated old house mm. um, in an area called Edgewater, which is now... Uh, full of condos. Um, at that time, this was 2002, a little bit more, uh, or less gentrified, let's say. Um, and I started an exhibition space with, uh, these friends called the house, um, which was sort of artist run, um, artist programmed exhibition space. And that was really the, the sort of beginning of my career. Wow. So who, who was the most influential person in your life growing up? Um, Probably my grandfather. He encouraged me a lot towards photography and was the first person who sort of kept uh, the things that I made, right? Mm. Um, Also bought me my first camera. I mean, I think that uh, certainly there were professors that I had in school that that helped me along the way. 
but he comes to mind. That's great. So when you were, you, you started out doing photography and then kind of transitioned into doing other art forms. How did that come about? Well, in school, a lot of the artwork that I was producing uh, sort of manipulated architecture. So I was really interested in taking everyday things, things that, um, that we recognize, things that we know from our everyday experience and transforming them in a way that would create uh, a, a kind of uncanny sense, right? Mm. Anytime you can take things that um, people have a certain expectation about and slightly twist that, it can create and provoke um, very unique uh, experiences. And after school, you know, I was making these works that manipulated the surface of architecture. So mm -hmm. the architecture appeared as if it was melting or if it was suddenly fabric and it was being affected by the wind. And I began um, exhibiting these pieces in galleries and museums um, sometime around 2005. I had my first exhibition in Paris with Emmanuel Periton. Oh, wow. And uh, Eddie Sluman at that time was the um, creative director at Dior and he came to the exhibition, um, acquired a number of works uh, for his own collection and then commissioned a project uh, for me to uh, create for Dior in Los Angeles. Mm. And I sent him the, uh, the, the pitch for the project. I sent him all my drawings for it and he said, yeah, great. It looks awesome. I love it. Then it arrived at the desk of the architect in LA who was building the project. And he said, this project is impossible. Mm. Uh, it doesn't meet building code. It doesn't, um, it's not going to last. It doesn't adhere to any of the sort of code considerations, right? That, yeah. And so I called uh, a friend of mine, Alex Mustanin, um, who's downstairs here now, uh, to, he, he studied architecture at Cooper and he helped me essentially transform that project in a way that would meet building code and, you know, fulfill all of the kind of obligations that, uh, an artist might run into outside of the gallery. Wow. Um, and that project was really the origin of snarkitecture. Oh, wow. So you have the architecture, you have snarkitecture and you have your uh, whole art entity as well. Mm -hmm. Anything else? <laughs> yeah, actually I also have a film company yeah. called film the future, um, which really, you know, quite small, quite yeah. new. Um, but as I started venturing into the film world, um, just found that I kind of needed my own team for that. And there were people that I, um, that I sort of learned to mm. work with and, you know, in some ways were teaching me along the way as well. So I formed a company with them called oh. film the future. Awesome. Awesome. I want to jump into that a little in a little bit, but I want let's jump back a little bit and talk about how, how did you start making money with your art? How did you make a name for yourself? Cause that's, I mean, to be where you're at now, exhibiting, exhibiting everywhere all over the world and having three companies, how did you get that start? How did you make that transition? I mean, it really started at the house. Um, and you know, for me, it was sort of about creating opportunity, uh, for myself rather than mm. waiting around for, you know, someone to come show your work. And as, as a young artist, the most difficult thing in the beginning is obviously to, to get your work in front of people that make decisions and, and who really, um, define taste and, and culture. Mm. Um, and rather than sort of, um, trying to get my work in front of them, I created a platform where they might come to me. Right. Uh -huh. So the house was an opportunity for that. And, and, um, sometime around the, the first year or two of the house, Art Basel was beginning in Miami mm. and my French gallerist, um, Emmanuel Periton was in Miami and somebody recommended that he go visit the house. And I remember the day he came very vividly. Um, he sat with us for hours and then came to the studio afterwards. And he told me years later that, you know, he saw something happening there that he hadn't seen in many other places. Mm. And it was a group of artists working together. I mean, I wouldn't call it a movement, but it was certainly uh, a collective of 15 to 20 artists all collaborating together, not necessarily on their own work, but on creating um, a place to exhibit. Mm. And he um, shortly thereafter organized an exhibition in Paris at his gallery um, called Miami Nice. Mm. That was 2003. And shortly thereafter, I began, he started to represent me. And I had my first show in Paris in 2005 and I've worked with him basically ever since. Wow. Um, 
his gallery has also expanded dramatically over the last 10 years um, with spaces in Hong Kong and uh, a space here now in New York. Oh, that's amazing. So that was your first gallerist that, yep. that signed you then? Yeah. That's great. And what were you creating before that in, in your own, you were doing a lot of your own work and, and different things like that until that opportunity came? A lot of the early works that I made were painting and they were sort of scenarios that I um, could have imagined constructing at some point. Um, but obviously when you have limited space and you have limited funds and you have limited materials, um, painting is a quite economical um way to implement some of those ideas mm. as the work progressed obviously i started to engage w directly with architecture more and you know in the last uh six or seven years really expanded into the creation of new mediums um or the use of materials that didn't previously have a um a kind of rule book right mm. no there's no manual for casting things in volcanic ash or, <laughs> or crystal yeah yeah so it came a lot through play and, and experimenting. Yeah, a lot of failure. I mean, specifically thinking about the uh, the volcanic ash works, those started after a trip that I made to Easter Island in um, 2010. I was there making a series of paintings that were mm -hmm. eventually published into a book um, by Louis Vuitton. And I was fascinated between uh, with this mixture of the, this kind of archaic past, mm -hmm. um, this civilization that had essentially collapsed uh on itself on easter island and the presence of contemporary life within that on the island and when i returned i started thinking about how to combine this kind of um archaeology of the past and some element of the present mm. and the first work i made from that was a camera cast in ash um which took many versions right <laughs> come back the after the first version when I would leave the studio, um, the camera would look great and I would come back in the morning and it would just be kind of like a pile of rubble. So there was a lot of experimentation and failure in order to find um, the way to make those works. Mm. How long did it take you to kind of find the groove into where that was actually started to work and started to come up, come together? Certainly months um, went by that were trial and error, but at any given time, I'm experimenting with some new process, right? There's things downstairs here in the studio that um, I don't know if they will be successful. Um, mm. They're sort of play either with new materials um, or new techniques with materials that I've uh, previously worked with. Wow. Wow. Constant practicing, constant playing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and I, th I feel like as an artist, that's part of the the process to, keep experimenting, keep trying new things. And in that respect, now when you're doing, now you be, you become known for the volcanic ash. How much of that's like a collection versus an ongoing, an ongoing project mm -hmm. for you? I mean, since I've started making work, it always feels like whatever idea that I'm sort of delving into in the present is like the last good idea. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and other things come and um, I can never really pinpoint the origin exactly of how I arrived at a certain idea, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the volcanic ash works, these works that use geological materials um, is definitely an ongoing project for me. And um, one of the things that I am experimenting heavily with now is color. In, in these works. And I've never used color in my works. Um, I'm colorblind. And uh, I, about uh, eight months ago now, received these glasses. They're not yeah. the ones I'm wearing now, but th these lenses that actually uh, correct some of the color vision that my uh, eyes are deficient in. Mm. Um, it's not 100% correction, but it certainly allows me to see things that I had never seen before that. Um, so I'm delving into how the use of color might affect um, some of the ideas that I'm working with. Yeah. That's got to be a crazy experience being able to see color for the first time. In yeah. That sense. It's, you know what it is? It's not really that I didn't see color before. It's the easiest way for me to describe it is the, the variation in color that I can see now is so much more broad 
mm. um, where before I might see, especially greens and reds, mm. um, just putting the glasses on, looking at grass. <laughs> it's um, the, the level of variation in it is so much more pronounced. Mm. Um, and I think that those things flattened out a little bit before. Oh, wow. So how do you think that's going to affect your work and, and what do you see, you know, especially playing with color in, in the future? I, I, when I was thinking about, uh, receiving the glasses, you know, I sort of imagined what this new scenario would be like, and it's quite different from how I imagined. Um, and in many ways is very distracting. Mm. When I, when I first got the glasses, I was wearing them every day and I realized that I was paying attention to different things and certain things would just be distracting me. You know, I'd be walking down the street and somebody wearing like a green shirt would pop out in my periphery and, and cause my attention to, to sway. Um, and I, you know, after a couple of months I didn't like it. So I started using the glasses only as a tool to know what you see. Right. Mm. So when I'm, I made a series of paintings actually, which were just, um, shown in Tokyo, uh, for the last exhibition that I opened that are color, uh, paintings and I, they're single color and all of the paintings that I've made so far in color since receiving the glasses are things that could otherwise be depicted quite well in black and white. So the first paintings were paintings of the moon, um, in various colors, uh, but they were single tones and I used the glasses to mix the paint. Once it was mixed and I knew what the color was, I took the glasses off and made the painting. Wow. So it it was a little bit, um, of a, you know, I see it as a tool. Yeah. That's fascinating. It's, it's almost like an interesting filter that you can use. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So how do you, how does it work when you are exhibiting your art? You, do you create collections and then have a certain number of that or how much, how much art do you produce? Um, not a lot. <laughs> um, I w- I'd like to be able to make more, but a lot of the work is time consuming. You know, normally at any given time, I'll have a number of exhibitions that are, um, planned for the future. So, I'm working on a number of projects now, one which opens in Dallas in, um, in May. Uh, I have a big New York solo exhibition in September and the works for that have been ongoing for months and in some cases years. Mm. It's at this point now, I'm sort of six, eight months out from the exhibition where I'm really starting to pick and choose about how I'm going to bring these things together. Mm. Um, and in other cases, especially when I have a particular subject that I want to focus on for an exhibition, I will be much more prescriptive about, uh, what kinds of things I want to make for that show. Mm. Um, so they're less like collections and they're more sort of a series of ideas that I find a link with. Um, Mm. sometimes, uh, that, that link comes to me quite quickly and other times it's really a, a kind of discovery. Yeah. So what do you do when you're, do you ever have like a creative block? I, there's often times where I, I, I can sort of see where I want to get to. Mm-hmm. And I know, um, I know really the idea that I want to achieve with an exhibition. Um, but it, it does matter, you know, where the exhibition is. This New York show for me is quite important. I've never had a solo show in New York. Wow. Um, and it's quite surprising for many people because I've lived here for, you know, 15 years. Yeah. Um, but because of the French gallery and just, a lot of the work that I've done in Asia and South America, it just never happened. Um, and Periton was, um, only moved here about a year and a half ago. Mm. So the New York show, you know, part of me wants to show things that have never been seen here before. And then the other part of me wants to show new things. So kind of going back and forth, uh, between that. But, um, in terms of creative block, it's funny because lately I've been using lucid dreaming to try to, kind of unlock some of the things that I, that I know are there. Really? Yeah. So I, I do you know anything about this? I've, I've heard a little bit, but tell me, I, I want to hear. So essentially lucid dreaming is where you're dreaming, but you know, you're dreaming and you're able to, uh, control things within the dream once you've done that. And I wouldn't say that I'm, that I've perfected how to do that, but there's, since I've started this process, there've definitely been moments where I'm dreaming and I am aware of it. So I know that I'm dreaming and I'm able to control certain things. Um, and specifically in the last couple of days, there's a technique where during the day when you're awake, 
you pick an action that you repeat over and over again. It can be um, reading the first sentence in a book. It can be looking at your watch. Mm. And you do that consecutively. So you look at your watch, you see it's uh, 12 o'clock. Mm-hmm. You look back at your watch, 12 o'clock again, and you do that three times. It's still 12 o'clock. In a dream, if you keep doing this daily, your mind starts to have this daily activity that you know that you do. And it, at some point, it will p- repeat that in your dream. Mm. But in the dream... It's never 12 o'clock twice. Your mind is not able to kind of connect those things. It'd be like the first sentence of a book. You read it, and you, when you read it again, uh-huh. something's off. Hmm. And so I've combined that with trying to um, go to sleep thinking about the spaces or the things that I'm trying to figure out. Like there, there's a particular space within the New York Gallery here that... I know the kind of work that I want to make. The space is not exactly perfect for it. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to figure out how to, um, to combine those two and really been trying to use lucid dreaming as a technique to kind of unlock that. That's fascinating. Where did you learn this technique? I mean, it's something that I've read about um, and uh, always sort of you know, known this technique, but yeah. really started pushing it a lot. Uh, over the last year. So is it anything like, I mean, how how does it relate to like daydreaming or sitting off and just like if you're awake and you're sitting there off in Neverland? (laughs) I mean, certainly daydreaming is a thing. And I I noticed that a lot of the best ideas for me come at night, either when I'm just falling asleep or I will wake up in the middle of the night and I'll be awake for an hour like thinking about an idea. And sometimes when I actually get up in the morning, they're terrible and they're, they were pretty, pretty bad ideas. But other times there are things within them that, um, I don't know, somehow the mind at that, at that moment is able to kind of, uh, unveil them. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. So do you write them down at night? Yeah. And then... I have a notebook by my bedside. Oh, wow. You've heard about microdosing and different things like that. Yeah. So microdosing is, it's kind of a new thing. It's, it's basically like taking microdoses of like mushrooms or, or anything like that to where it's tempered and it like, it's it's supposed to unlock a Mm -hmm. certain creative flow in your brain. Yeah. I've never, ever used any drugs (laughs) at all. So that's, you know, somebody looking at my work might be, well, who knows if they would be surprised by that, but it's not, it's not an avenue that I pursued for that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's, it's, I think it's a pretty new thing from what it sounds like in terms of um, what's happening in, in mm-hmm. I don't know, the circles, I guess, the circles of entrepreneurship and creativity from sure. what, I've, what I've heard. Sure. <laughs> so now your series with the uh, the moldings in the walls, mm-hmm. with the, almost the, the people under a cape and, and sure. things, where, where did that, where was the inspiration for that? The first works that I was making with that didn't include figures. So they were sort of um, physical studies of ways to manipulate architecture. So thinking about mm. um, natural processes that I can sort of engage. Um, there's a work downstairs where the wall literally appears as if it's melting. Um, I looked at uh, glacial formations. Can I create a scenario where the wall almost looks like it's eroding like a glacier? Mm. Um fabric can i suddenly transform the architecture into something that feels as if it has movement and and a kind of lightness and all of these things are destabilizing for architecture right there are things that uh, architecture is not supposed to do and generally if architecture is doing those things something's wrong Mm -hmm. and bad things are happening um up until the point um, that I, you know, I worked for many years as a uh, scenic designer for choreographer Merce Cunningham. Mm. And really up until the point that I worked in dance, uh, there was no figures in my work at all. And I never included people, even in my paintings, because mm. I always felt that based on the way they were dressed or the way that their hair was cut, it links it with a specific moment in time. And I've always liked a feeling in my work that it can float in time. Mm. Um, and time is something that I've played with heavily, both in um, writing about my work, uh, engaging in titles uh, mm. for the work, and you know, especially with the Future Relic and these fictional archaeological works, taking things from today and causing them to appear as if they have been uncovered on some future archaeological site. So mm. there, there's a kind of... Um, 
there's a break with time, something yeah. that feels off about it that is confusing. And the work sort of lives in that confusion. Mm. So it seems like that's kind of like your the consistent theme throughout your... The manipulation of people's expectations is... That's what I'm doing often. Mm. Mm. Can you explain that a little bit more? So, you know... People expect architecture to be solid. They, ex they don't expect it to melt. People expect um, objects from the present to have a certain solidity about them. Mm. And when you can take a Canon camera that's sitting right over here and make it out of crystal and cause it to appear eroded as if it's been, you know, found in the future, there there's subtle, subtle shifts, mm -hmm. right, in your perceived reality that are close enough that you... Uh, you engage with them, right? You're you're confused by them, but they're they're off enough that they create really this uncanny sense. And mm. for me, the the uncanny, the idea of the uncanny is really about um, like a haunted house. And why is why is a haunted house such a strange idea? It's because mm. the house is supposed to be something that is comfortable, safe, right? And once you're able to disrupt that, there's a very particular feeling within mm. that, um, which is the uncanny. Wow, I love that. It's so cool. Yeah. And how does that play into what you're creating, you know, now into the future? What are you, what are you planning on messing with next? Um, well, as I said, color is certainly something that I'm pushing towards and I'm shifting some of the materials, um, in scale. Mm. So there's a new technique that I've arrived at, which, you know, I sort of always knew was there, but it's a technique for uh, scaling objects. So I can take that same camera and enlarge it by five times or shrink it by five times. And mm. then the level of detail is going to be perfect as the original. Oh, wow. Um, and when I combine that, imagine if I made that camera five times as big as it is, but there was a hand touching it that was regular scale. So there's a, there's a, a scale shift that mm. I'm really interested in playing with, um, which is just starting now. Awesome. Awesome. So going through your career, what have been uh, some of your biggest fears uh, as an artist? Um, biggest fears. So certainly there have been moments when I have been presented with opportunities that you know, scared the shit out of me. Yeah. <laughs> um, the first one probably was when Merce Cunningham asked me to create stage design for him. This was 2005. Mm -hmm. He was 60 years older than me at that time, you know, <sighs> had worked with the greatest artists of the 20th century, everyone from Andy Warhol to Robert Rauschenberg, Jasper Johns, you name it, he worked with them and called me and asked me to create a stage design. I had never worked in stage design. I'd never been on a stage before. I didn't know anything about the kind of logistics and the, um, the sort of lingo about how you discuss and talk about, um, works that are created for stage. Mm. There's also, you know, many other limitations to creating a work that needs to travel in the way that a stage design, um, oh. is done. So he also worked in a very particular way, which was entirely based on chance. So he came really out of a school that was developed by him and John Cage in the 1950s, which created a new kind of dance, new kind of performance in which he would create his choreography, a musician would create the score, and an artist would create the stage design, but none of them would know what the other one was making. So when I worked with Merce, I never knew what the dance was, I never heard the music, and they never saw my stage design until the premiere. It was wow. very much a, let's work independently of each other and combine these things. And when he started this process in the 50s, it was really about sort of evacuating his own taste right mm. out of it and and what better way to do that than to not make any decision at all about it mm. to allow another artist to work within your space um not knowing what they would make it would free him from that so that was great for me because he basically said i would like you to make a stage design for me the premiere is in a year and a half see you there kind of thing <laughs> wow. um the other part about it was terrifying because I didn't know what he was doing. I didn't know anything about the rest of the piece. So I was kind of, you know, working in a bubble in a sense. Mm -hmm. And after that first work, um, 
I stayed on and continued to work with him basically until he died um, wow. in 2009 wow. and learned a lot about the creation of um, plastic arts in a scenario where there's movement, mm. right? And that I, in some ways led to some of the other pieces that I've done um, like in film. Wow. Right. Wow. So now you're venturing off into film. Yeah. Film has been a kind of new, well, new three years now. Um, <laughs> still feels new, but it was, a, um, you know, I was friendly with some people in film world and um, really it was um, Jane Rosenthal, the head of Tribeca films oh, yeah. that pushed me to develop an idea that I had talked to her about into a film. Wow. And that's the, the future relic. That's future relic. Exactly. And it's how many part series? So it's a nine part series. Right. I've made four of them and I've basically, uh, the, the film is made, um, out of sequence and it was a way for me to sort of, um, start in film. I wrote the entire script for a feature length, but divided it up because it took place in, um, different time periods. It kind of naturally divided itself into these sections mm. and have made, uh, one at a time. That was great, but it also, you know, it, it's dragging the project out for so long. So, yeah. Um, in the interim, I've started to work on some other, um, shorter film projects. Gotcha. Um, one of which is the film that I just, uh, shot in Japan. Which, so that's, that was different than. It's, it's not connected to future relic at all. Oh, okay. It's an, it's a, also takes place in the future. Um, <laughs> my fascination with the future continues, but it's a story about Kendo. Okay. Um, Japanese sword fighting training, like uh, mm. fencing. And um, really a story between a, a father and a daughter. It's a short uh, film. Probably yeah. going to end up somewhere around uh, 30 minutes. Oh, wow. Now, are you going to be doing a lot more films in the future along with, with all the other stuff? Or is it kind of a side project for you? I think, um, you know, part of the fascinating thing for me about the film work is that I'm able to combine so many of the other things that I work in, in mm -hmm. architecture, it's really set design, um, and creating all the props yeah. for, for these films. So I've, I've not only directed them, but I've been heavily involved in the creation of the, um, the scenario and everything mm -hmm. from the costumes to the set design. Yeah. For me, it feels like the most controlled form of, uh, art that I can make. Mm -hmm. Right. And it is beautiful in that way. Yeah. So definitely continuing. That's awesome. Now, I mean, you have so many things going on. You have the the film, the you have the art, you have the architecture, you have a family. Mm -hmm. How do you balance all of that in time? Sure. <laughs> Speaking of time. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I, with all of those things, I still am able to be here a lot, you yeah. know, with my family a lot of the time. They travel with me sometimes, but all of the things that I make all sort of feel the same to me. Um, doesn't matter whether I'm working on a film or with, with the architecture studio. It's, um, it's all sort of, uh, creative output. And I've been fortunate to work with amazing people that, um, are able to kind of subdivide mm -hmm. some of the, you know, I'm not good at a lot of things and there's a lot of people that now work with me that are good at those things. Yeah. And that frees up a lot of my time to kind of spend in what I'm good at. Yeah. So how do you delegate certain different tasks? I mean, I have, um, specialists really within the studio, mm -hmm. within the architecture studio, um, in, in the film company that, you know, they know how to do certain things. And as projects come up, I, I start to kind of push things in certain areas. Mm. Everyone, I mean, everyone's busy all the time. Everyone kind of knows what, what yeah. they're doing. Yeah. How many hours a night of sleep do you get? I usually get eight hours of sleep a night. No pretty, kidding. Yeah. I'm pretty like regular about it. Yeah. You are an efficient man. Yes. I love it. have to be. <laughs> so what kind of, do you have any like morning routines, any sort of, any sort of routines in general that help you kind of stay optimized? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll wake up, I'll have breakfast, uh, with my son and usually I'm at the gym by 7am. Wow. Um, you know, and I try to do that as much as I can, even when I'm traveling, it just helps with jet lag and yeah. um, that sort of thing. And also, you know, 
spending so much time at night thinking about stuff and like it's a way to kind of unlock that stuff further and think about the day. Mm, mm. Um, and then I'm usually here at the studio by nine. Wow. Rigorous. Very regular. Yeah. <laughs> how many, how often are you actually here in the studio versus traveling? Um, it's felt like I'm traveling a lot lately. Um, I would say I'm here, you know, 60, 70% of the time. Um, and I'm, and I'm never really out of New York as a, as a rule for more than seven days. Just to, you know, so I'm not away from my son that long. That's good. Unless he's with me. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I follow, I follow your Instagrams and Snapchats. Um, and I just feel like you're, you're everywhere, all over the place. Everywhere and, and grounded at the same time. You know, I sort of, um, even if I'm in Japan or um, wherever I am, mm -hmm. I, I, I very much know what's happening here in the studio and mm. keep track yeah. of progress. What keeps you grounded in general? Um, I don't know. I mean, family is certainly something that is amazing to come back to. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm trying to, I have a lot of uh, dreams and hopes and things that I want to achieve. And I know that in order to do those things, there, there are certain things that I have to do. And so yeah. I, I do them. Very disciplined. Yeah. It, I mean, the word efficiency is something that I think about a lot and not spending time on things that, um, are not useful. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I mean, and so being efficient is, it's like you got to make decisions fast and, um, what's kind of your decision-making process be to make faster decisions and become, be more efficient. I would say that's not an area that I'm super efficient. <laughs> <laughs> I sure um, seem like it. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say that I procrastinate, but I, um, especially in terms of thinking about works to create for an exhibition, sometimes I'll push right up until the last moment that I know it's physically possible mm. to give myself enough time to really think about, you know, what it is that I want to make. And there, sometimes I will make things that don't end up in an exhibition, but I've given the chance for them to be by kind of deciding at that moment, if I don't start making work now, then it's not going to be completed by the, by the show. Mm, mm, gotcha. Gotcha. Now you work with Usher quite a bit, which is mm -hmm. how we met. Mm -hmm, exactly. How has that helped in terms of, uh, like partnering and collaboration and, and how does that play into the, the career that you're building? Yeah. Um, I mean, he and I met and we were friends, um, before we ever discussed, uh, working together, and as he was developing some of the first ideas for this new album that um, he's coming out with, I kept telling him, like, you should do this and this, you should do that. And, you, you know, just more visually um, things that I was thinking about that he should work on for videos or album art or whatever, yeah. stage design. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time with him last summer. Um, he was in London recording the album and I was there working on another project and I kept telling him all these things. And finally he said, like, why don't you just work on it with me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, so uh, I've been working with him on the sort of creative direction. Um, you know, he's a very active partner. So yeah. he will, um, he definitely has a voice, you know, within that. But it's more um, me trying to steer him in a new direction. Mm. And part of the the thing that, you know, I have been adamant about is sort of getting back to him as a vocalist and him as a singer mm -hmm. um, and pushing that more than some of the theatrics of his stage presence that yeah. have been lots of dancing girls and pyrotechnics. And, there, <laughs> I'm, you know, there will still be some of that, certainly. But I think people forget there's a lot of musicians today in R&B space yeah. that do not have the kind of vocal training that he has and the ability yeah. really that he has. Yeah. He's, he's got an incredible voice yeah. and sometimes it gets lost in the, in the theatrics. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to see what, what the, what's going to come of this next. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be fun. But I love what you did with his, the chains video. Mm -hmm. That was very, very cool. I love the the art, the sculpture, and how you brought it all together. Thank you. Yeah. Now the gun series that you did is that was that specifically for that or yeah. So when we first started talking about chains, there was a lot of discussion around obviously guns and their use um, against unarmed black youth, mm -hmm. and trying to find a new way to talk about that. Um, mm -hmm. That 
you know, obviously is present within the song. Um, so I cast a number of them as if they were being seen in, a, you know, a future museum. Mm. Um, kind of this idea that um, I can project this future where the only place that we will see these guns is in a museum. Um, and during the video, there are moments where the guns are actually shattering into pieces and this kind of um, cathartic breaking of them. Mm. You know, that said, during the unveiling, you know, I talked about this idea that these things are not really going to do anything. The, this video is not going to do anything, you know. Um, it's really just a, a way to kind of keep the conversation present. Mm. Um, I think that as long as um, we can keep pushing energy back to that, mm -hmm. uh, at least people are thinking about it. Yeah, absolutely. What do you? What's your thoughts on how art can be used to to change and and change the world and create conversation around that? Yeah. To say to say that art can change the world is is a big statement, um, and no single artwork can do that. Mm. Um, it's more of a, a sort of zeitgeist that you can push forward and a way of thinking um, that takes many artists in many different mediums mm. um, uh, to push forward. But you know, I if I can sort of allow a single viewer or someone who experiences an exhibition not to think about um, one specific issue differently, but to really just in general think about their everyday experience in a different way. Mm. That's it's kind of introduction to a new way of thought that maybe is influential. Mm. Right. I like that. I like that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like art can communicate across any language. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah. a universal translator. <laughs> Definitely. Have you, I guess, going back to the time idea, have you seen, you've seen Inception? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Has that um, idea influenced your, your work or your thought process at you, all? You mean the film in particular? The film, the idea <clears throat> of, you know, cause we talked about, about you know, we talked about lucid dreaming and the, the idea of time and back and forth. And I think there's a lot, I mean, even with, uh, was it Interstellar, there's mm -hmm. still kind of that, that whole different play of dimension. Yeah. I mean, for me, Chris Nolan is one of the best yeah. filmmakers um, living today. And he, unlike a lot of other, um, especially Hollywood uh, productions, is able to, he's able to achieve things that still live up to this, the kind of scale that that sort of film expects. Yeah. Um, but there's so many levels to it. I mean, in Inception, three levels deep. <laughs> <laughs> um but uh, his films certainly leave me thinking afterwards um, a lot. Yeah, yeah. What other films have uh, do you look up to, or or have you have inspired you a lot? I mean, it's been amazing. You know, to when we were in Japan, the production studio that supported our production was Kurosawa's family production studio. So, being able to work in that lineage has been amazing. Um, but you know, beyond that, it's sort of like the big greats that you'd expect, like Kubrick and, yeah. um, you know, sci-fi has been a, and played a huge part in my, you know, a lot of the work that I make, my artwork in taken in a film context, you'd call it sci-fi. Mm -hmm. Um, so definitely, yeah, I could definitely, definitely see that influence. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. So. Now, what advice would you give to somebody, an artist starting out? How do, how do you create those opportunities like you were talking about? I mean, it's sort of, you know, creating your own opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I didn't have a space to show, so I made an exhibition space. Um, and I think that a lot of times people... Um, especially when you're young, you get bogged down with like, oh, it's um, it's going to be so expensive and like, you know, where can I show it? Anyone who has a phone today, if you have Instagram and Snapchat or whatever else, you can build an immediate audience. You don't need anything. Yeah. You need a phone and a connection. Um, and I think, you know, social media has broadened the the amount of people certainly that see my work, but that see art in general. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I joke with, um, my dealer, more people will see my exhibition from a single post that I 
do on Instagram, then we'll actually go through a show, mm. you know? And there's a lot of power in that. So the tools are there certainly yeah. Um, today. Yeah. What, um, what are gallerists, what are they looking for in artists? <sighs> I mean, it's super broad. I think that one of the things, especially for younger artists, that a gallerist would be looking for is whether they can see a future arc in the work. Mm. Right. So they're not just looking at the work that they're making today. They're trying to imagine how they might build on that mm. 10 years down the road. And that's a tricky thing to do, especially as a younger artist, you're working in many times in a much more confined space. You may be working with a much more limited set of ideas mm -hmm. naturally, you know, when you're younger. Um, and it takes a lot to sort of think about that. I mean, I certainly, I wouldn't have recognized it like in myself looking back. Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to imagine looking at like a 22 year old artist's work today and yeah. me being able to identify somebody who would progress, um, to a certain level. Yeah. So I don't know how he does it. <laughs> <laughs> and is this just one gallerist or do you have multiple in different locations or is it all kind of fall under one? So group? he's kind of the main, the main gallery. There are a number of other galleries that I've worked with. Mm -hmm. Um, the exhibition that I just had in Japan was at Nanzuka. Um, there's a gallery in, uh, Brazil called yeah. Barrow. There's one in London. There's one in Amsterdam, yeah. Sydney, many different places, but Emmanuel acts as the kind of the head really. And I trust him, his advice, mm -hmm. you know, things in many ways, it's often about the things that we don't do that can mm -hmm. come to define, uh, because there are a lot of opportunities that seem great, but, uh, sometimes they're not the best scenario. Mm. How do you choose what to say no to? I mean, I certainly, I certainly rely on his advice, um, for certain things and sometimes just instinct. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, I've chosen in a lot of ways to push my work outside of the U S rather than trying to focus on being here. And in some ways, um, it's created a kind of, not just a demand for the work, but mm -hmm. a, a demand to see the work yeah. in the States that is, uh, or wouldn't have been necessarily present if I was showing here all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is kind of an interesting side effect that I didn't really consider. Yeah. So how do you grow in terms, how do you scale as an artist? Um, carefully. <laughs> um, you know, part of the, the, the interesting thing for me with architecture and with, um, film the future is that it allows for me to delve into other areas of creative output that don't affect my artwork, right? So I could probably make more, physically I could probably make more artwork than I do, mm -hmm. but that may dilute some of the, you know, ideas. I'm only, because I'm only able to make so much, I really have to focus not only on what I'm making, but um, on the quality of those things, right? Mm -hmm. Less is more. Uh, quantity over quality. Yeah. Some of those ideas are, they're inherent in what I do because I'm spending time doing other things in film and in architecture. Got it. Got it. Uh, so now you talk about social media and just wrapping up here, what, what advice would you give to, to people in terms of getting their work out there on, on social media? Is there a certain method that you use or certain patterns kind of thing? I would say, um, you know, I try to be as deliberate as possible and, you know, to post things that not just that people want to see, but that, that are consistent, right? There's a, there's a level of, there's a level of interest that you want to keep with an audience mm -hmm. or I certainly do where they don't get bored by stuff. They're not looking at what I'm eating for lunch, you know? <laughs> yeah. Unless maybe if they're on my Snapchat, they are, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's a, I'm kind of fascinated with the, the, the sort of language of those different platforms. Snapchat feels very different to me than yeah. Instagram. Um, it's, I can be much more candid with it. It's much more about the everyday, about where I'm at, what I'm doing right in that moment. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, the reactions that people send back to me is like, they want to hear more about these, not the banal things, but the process really, um, which 
on the, on my Instagram, it's much more completed work and things that, um, I've either already put out into the world or I plan on. Um, and sometimes with the, with the snap, I'm able to show things that may not ever make it to the gallery, but their ideas in progress. Yeah. yeah. That's great. Yeah. I feel like Instagram has become more curated and certainly, yeah. Is there anything that you choose like not to show for a specific reason? Um, no, not necessarily. I mean, I'll post many different types of things, but it it's certainly, you know, I'll, I'll edit more mm. than I would. Yeah. 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 Great. So one last question that I love to ask all my guests is, um, what does the phrase live inspiration mean to you? Live inspiration. Um, I mean, getting up every day and sort of kind of making it your own, right? I show up here at the studio if I'm in New York at nine and I leave at six, whether I have something to do here or not, whether mm -hmm. I have an idea or not. And, you know, showing up is half the battle and sometimes you just have to push for it. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So where can people find you on the, on the interwebs? Um, well, my website is danielarsham.com and same on Instagram and same on Snapchat. Although there's an underscore in my Snapchat, Daniel uh, underscore Arsham. Aha. Got it. Yeah. Well, Daniel, I just thank you for taking the time and I acknowledge you for the amazing art that you're creating in this world. I know it's, it's inspiring to me and, and uh, I'm sure it's inspiring to a lot of other people. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode with Daniel Arsham. I am your host, Nick Onkin. And if you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love it if you could share it out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, or whatever social media you choose. And also, we'd love it if you could help us out by leaving us a review over on iTunes. That helps us get the podcast up in the ratings and spread the word to even more people. So with that, go out, create your life by creating every moment, and we'll see you next time.